This episode of The Bag Drop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by New Club Golf Society, a humble community of golfers connected by our love for the game. Follow us on social media with the handle New Club Golf. Welcome back. I'm Matt Considine. In our last season of The Bag Drop, we uncovered the untold stories from the PGA pros, superintendents, architects, and operators who make it possible for us to play the game we all love. To kick off our new season, we turn the mic to our members and ambassadors to show you how the community itself might be the best part of golf. Kevin Moore, how's it going? It's going well. Going well. Nice little busy Tuesday. Yeah, which, uh, what do you got going today down in, at UGA? Yeah, we got a lot in the in the cooker right now. So it's actually a pretty monumental day today. Uh, we're renaming the College of Education. Uh, so we're renaming it after Mary Frances Early, uh, who, which is just a one of the biggest figures uh, in terms of the University of Georgia and representing it, uh, representing the university as someone that's truly inspiring. That's really cool. I, I saw. I just noticed your T-shirt you're wearing. Mary Frances Early you got you got the swag already. Uh, what was her significance to the university? Yeah, so if we go back to desegregation, obviously the University of Georgia, they had two undergraduates that were the the first black students at the University of Georgia. Mary Frances Early at the time, uh, she was she's from Atlanta. I don't know if technically living in Atlanta or not at the time. I forget that part of the story. But she was going to the University of Michigan because northern schools were paid uh, were either paying for or giving free tuition, whatever the situation was, to black students from the South to come up and, and do continued studies. And she saw their experience, you know, the typical rioting, protesting, rocks being thrown. She saw that as motivation to, to attend the University of Georgia. So she chose to change her graduate studies to go to the University of Georgia, went through all sorts of turmoil to get into the University of Georgia, but ultimately became our first graduating student, uh, black student from the University of Georgia. And this was lost in the history for a long time until in the last two decade or two, it was uncovered that she was our first graduating student and happened to be from our college of education that I'm situated within. So after all this was done and figured out, um, an initiative was put into place to rename the college after her. And is the uh, she is the first black person at the University of Georgia to have a college named after her as well. Uh, so it's just wow. a really, truly inspiring. We had a gala last night uh, to honor honor her and honor this renaming as well as the uh, the naming ceremony today. So it's just a truly inspiring time to be here within the college. I was I said last night, I think I posted on Twitter that I've never been more proud to be a part of this university and a part of this college uh, to, to name that after Mary Frances Early. It's just it's humbling and really makes you inspired to walk into this uh, this college every day. That's really cool, man. That's that's awesome. Uh, enjoy the celebration. That's going to be fun. Uh, but first, let's talk some golf. Let's do it. We should probably preface this with, you know, a lot of times we'll get a compliment on a good podcast where people will be like, man, it sounded like I was listening to two lifelong buddies just rap about golf. In this case, it's actually the truth. Uh, we first met each other. I was an incoming freshman, I believe. Um, and I walked into the dorm room on my official, I already know where you're going with this. <laughs> I walk into my official college visit at the university of Akron and I see this total dweeb sitting there drinking a two liter of Mountain Dew and, uh, playing Grand Theft Auto to a very, in, a very focused session of Grand Theft, Theft Auto. Is that your first recollection? I, I, it was. I was probably in the in the middle of about a twelve hour burn on uh, Grand Theft Auto, just doing a, a speed run on it, seeing how far I could get. <laughs> would that, I do have to correct you though. It was probably a can of Mountain Dew. I don't. I, I prefer the canned variety <laughs> versus you, the uh, the bottled variety. You know, as healthy as you live now, I find <laughs> it. I always have that little memory of, of you as a you know young collegiate golfer housing Mountain Dews. Uh, on the golf course too. I look back on that, and I mean Reese's Cups and Mountain Dew. That was that was my uh, my birdie machine. You you probably would have. Uh, who knows? You may putting off a of Mountain Dew. I'm sure there was <laughs> some type of jitters <laughs> that were created. So maybe that's why I have the yips these days. I need to go back to the Mountain Dew. Uh, maybe maybe it just has to to level set for you one last time. <laughs> um, well, dude, thanks for for coming on the bag drop. You've been requested. 
a bunch of times uh, by members and ambassadors. You know, most uh, folks will know you from your work on the blog uh, for newclub.golf. And, you know, you've wrote some of our most popular articles. Um, you've contributed to the community in, in numerous ways that, you know, I'm sure we'll get into over the course of this this pod. But, uh, but yeah, people want to hear from the chief. You're our chief ambassador. <laughs> you know, you're helping grow the community across the country. And, uh, and it's about time we, we have you on the show. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to this. It's been a special group to be a part of, uh, that's for sure. You know, I, I know they say not to ask questions that you know the answers to, um, but I'm not going to pretend like I know, you know, your full, your full story. We know each other very well. We compete together. We play college golf together. Uh, we've become lifelong friends, you know, through the game of golf, but it's gotten so much far beyond that. And I, and I really hope that comes through on, on this conversation. I know people will, uh, will definitely hear that in our voices, but, uh, I don't want to assume anything and, and I kind of want to just do what I do with a lot of guests and start from the beginning. You know, where did the professor get introduced to golf? Where did he, uh, where did his journey start? Oh man. So in the, in the wonderful town of New Philadelphia, Ohio, go Quakers. Um, that's definitely where I got my start. So Mom and dad really got me into the game. Um, not super young and early, nothing like three years old, but I, probably when I was, I don't know, somewhere between six and eight years old, um, dad had started to play golf. Uh, so he had me out with him a couple times, following along, and then mom started playing as well. And that's really my earliest memories of golf are playing with them too. And then my aunt and uncle from Nebraska, because they are golf addicts. And then when they drive across the country, they're playing golf the whole way. Uh, so really started there, just playing with them, going and watching dad at the course. Eventually he joined the local country club and got plugged in there, which I look back now on it. And I think that was their version of daycare. I think they were very strategic <laughs> in that, that they could drop me off at seven in the morning and know I was going to be there till seven at night. Uh, but yeah, it really, really started back there with just family and mom and dad. Tell, tell us about union, union country club. Um, describe it for those that may not be familiar. Yeah, so you're just, I would definitely say it fits in your typical smallish town. So what town, New Philly itself, I think is 10 to 15,000, but Dover's included. So call it 30,000 people, maybe back then. Your typical small town country club, you know, nice clubhouse, grill room, sort of banquet room, a good, good Tom Bendelo golf course, uh, really, really nice golf course, a lot of variety throughout the, the course, really greens that range from subtle to a couple with multiple tiers in them that just really gave you different looks different challenges throughout a round um some holes with length and a couple you know short wedge par threes so really just a cool golf course that we we're lucky to grow up on um so and you grew small up, town Go ahead. yeah and, you, and, you, and it is i mean new philadelphia uh for those that have been or may have passed through it's a very warm place you know good midwestern town western values just seems like always warm and friendly people unless you're playing basketball which you know their fans can get a little uh a little rough in that little tiny gym a little a little rowdy in that gym with the fans right on top of you but yeah the country club i mean the warmness was there like we had a circle of us kids and people have always commented like i'm friends with a lot of older people and that's because like we had a good group of you know my dad's friends and that that just really looked after us really took care of us both in you know, personal life as well as golf, right? They wanted, they included us in playing golf. I got to play with my dad and his friends. And through that, a lot of personal life lessons too. You know, they really looked at after us in terms of our, you know, aspirations and our direction in life, which was just a really great community to grow up in. I mean, I still go to bowl games with that crew. And anytime I'm back, I'm eating dinner with them, playing golf with them. Uh, yeah, just a really, really, really fortunate and lucky to grow up at Union, not only because the friends I developed, but also the mentors I had through that. So you, you th- that those friends that you grew up with, um, you know, some really darn good players. How did it feel? I mean, you knew you were going to be a talented junior at a certain age, I'm sure. But how did it feel to be the third best on your high school golf team? <laughs> Throwing the third best, jeez, throwing shots already. No, so <laughs> like what's kind of fascinating about we had a really it's really interesting evolution. So. I'm sure you're referring to Chris Miller, who played at Kent State. Um, obviously, the play at Kent State has had just phenomenal game. Then Blake Sattler, who we played with at Akron, and we're lucky. You know, I'm lucky to know and stay friends with both of them and caddy for Blake throughout the years and that sort of stuff. 
what was really cool is our the three evolutions of our golf games are very different. So Chris was the stud. I mean, when I was starting playing seventh and eighth grade, I didn't know what competitive golf was. Yeah, even to when I qualified for the junior am, I didn't know what the junior am was. So I called up my coach and was like, "Should I go to this?" And he about dropped his phone when I did that. Uh, and so Chris was always the stud. He was always knew about the national scene and played on that. I was in this middle ground where Greg Leggett, we hired him um, to be our high school coach when I was going into my sophomore year. Uh, and he came in as someone that played in state championships, was a good golfer in his, in his own right, as they would say. Um, and he, he reshaped the program. He wanted to turn it into a competitive program. And at that time, I had to have Chris on the team, obviously, then myself and Blake. And so Greg took me from like a scoring average of 40 to 36 in one year just by working with me. Uh, and then Blake was a little bit younger, obviously. And so then Blake kind of got the benefits of that, of having four years of competitive high school golf. Uh, so like I was in, so we say is like Chris started off as the best one. And then there was a sh very, very short time period where I probably had the best scoring average and the, the best performance. And then Blake very quickly came along and said, no, both y'all get, get in the backseat and follow me along. And obviously he's gone off the pro career. Um, was there uh and you guys were each a year apart, is that right? Each a year apart. I mean, do you think, is it the, the competitiveness? Talk about the competitiveness of that. Like, how did that, obviously, Blake being the youngest, the smallest in stature as well, you know, if Blake's listening to this, that's not a shot. That's just the, the reality. He's a smaller guy, and, and he, but he's a feisty competitor. I mean, he kicked my ass up and down the, the fairway for a good four or five years. But uh, was that built into your guys' relationship? I mean, you guys are still lifelong friends, but... Was that competitive drive what kind of produced one after the other to get better and better? You know, what's interesting, I never, the three of us, so then we had David Gerber, who was a year ahead of Chris Miller. He was a big player in our scene as well. Joe Bowers is another guy. He was my age. And then Seth Taylor was Chris Miller's age. So that group was really our golf group. What's interesting, at least from like my point of view, I was never, I never felt super competitive with Blake and Chris, as in like we hated to lose to each other. We loved to beat each other. Like we were definitely, I always sense in it together. We played every day and like kind of like David Gerber and some of the other ones were more of the ones you wanted to beat because they were the chirpy ones. None of the three of us were chirpy. We just went about our business playing golf. We loved the game of golf and, and that's what we did. But we pushed each other to practice harder and we definitely, we wanted to be better than each other. But in a way that just bettered each other is really, I think, the relationship that, that was there. I think as, as it went along, Blake definitely developed that fire the most of like, I'm going to win. Like, I'm I'm the best out here. He developed that confidence, that swagger that, you know, I'm the best out here and I don't need anybody that I don't need to prove it to you or whatever. And, then, you know, I think he still carries that with him now. Like, he's the guy when I can walk off the 13th green and say, hey, let's start a bet. And the next hole, he has a hole in one. I mean, that's happened, right? Like he just has, he's developed that attitude of like, I'm, my game is better than everybody else and I'm going to show that, um, but in a very spirited way. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, small school, small town. I always found it fascinating. I think you actually can see that uh, time and time again with young golfers is if you look at, you know, the people that, uh, make it to the professional ranks like Blake has and had success, there's usually, you know, even though golf is an individual sport, there's usually people around them that really fueled their practice, fueled their um, their competition, and and I think you and Chris are are definitely that for Blake, and and uh, you know that group might change over time, but um, yeah, I just I know you guys were always so supportive of each other, but you know when, when you see a team dominating like you guys did in high school, uh, there's usually something to it, and that's I think that's something to it was you guys spending. Every waking day playing golf together. Oh, every day. I mean, I'm not lying when I said seven to seven. Like, go up, play golf, hang out at the pool. You know, we had a couple pool girls that we like to talk to, fellow student, you know, fellow high school students of ours that we all either had a crush on at one point or dated or something like that. So hang out there a couple hours and back on the golf course playing another 18 holes, right? That was pretty good that life. Was our, that was our routine. Yeah, it, it, it was a really good life. It's I pretty good life. I didn't realize how privileged I was at the time, and it was it was the way to be. So diving into college, and yeah. we we lived in the same house together. We played college golf together. So there's a world of questions <laughs> and side stories that we could get into. 
Uh, but, you know, maybe just start, sum up your college experience in one word. <laughs> um, volatile. <laughs> volatile. <laughs> or maybe um, life-shaping, I think, would be a, a better term for it. So what do you mean by that? We went, and I think you can attest to this, we went through a lot in college. College was the first time I ever faced a personal challenge, like that I can say, right? I grew up in a small town within a, you know, a dad that was a chiropractor, a DC. So we were very well off, especially relative to the town, uh, you know, very comfortable. So really, I mean, I was set, set up to succeed through that, right? Just like keep your head down, do your work, and you're going to come out great and end up at the University of Akron, great institution for what I was looking to study and playing golf. Um, so I never really had a personal challenge beyond, you know, you break up with a girlfriend, that sort of typical stuff. But then, yeah, college, right? The college golf ate me up a little bit right? in terms of just for lots of different reasons. You know, Coach and I didn't get along very well. Uh, at the same time, my game fell apart, lost confidence in my game, tried to go through a couple swing changes. None of them had traction and just really hit a situation where I wasn't happy with golf and myself. I just literally was in a dark place. I didn't enjoy it. Like I didn't enjoy going to the golf course. Um, and so that was a challenge, right? You're on a scholarship. You have to perform. You have to put in the time, but yet you're not enjoying what you need to do to keep your scholarship or whatever. And a lot of introspection from that and just thinking about, okay, what makes me happy? What, what should I be doing? How much can I stomach here? Where should I put in my focus? Like all those sort of internal questions for the first time in my life are there on what, what should I do? And, you know, what is my direction moving forward? Did you feel like you were alone in, in those feelings? Uh, no, I mean, we had such a great team, right? Like I, I think about this the experience we had and it wasn't great for most of our golf games. You know, a lot of us fell out of glove with golf somehow. Our competitive golf games didn't get better when we were in college. You know, so it'd be easy to say, oh, do I regret going there or do I regret any of that. And I think about the relationships we had, right? My, our relationship and how deep that's been throughout our entire life. Um, I don't want to leave anyone out. Sean Dove, right? Sean Dove was someone that I really bonded with in college golf. J.R. Rogers, like even, even the ones I don't keep in touch with that much. And maybe, you know, at some level we got in fights or whatever because of certain things like Chris Jamison or whatever, like still the relationship had the value that we had in the relationship with each other. Um, so no, I never felt alone in that. I always, we always had each other. Right? We always, no matter what happened, we, we found a way to put our heads together and get through. Uh, and so, yeah, I never felt alone in that journey. Yeah. I, I ask, I ask it cause when I was hearing you kind of explain it, you know, uh, personally, I, I kind of look back that I did feel alone in that my specific instance was, was different than anybody else's or it felt like it was. When in actuality, you know, it's the same mental and emotional struggle that any golfer deals with. And I think looking back, I think I would have been and, you know, we're younger. You, you learn these lessons, but uh, it would have been better off to just talk about it. Talk about the anxieties around performance. Talk about, you know, uh, the things outside of just your golf improvement. Like if we would have been talking about architecture, if we would have been talking about, you know, all the things that we love and obsess about golf today back then, I would we would have performed better. And and I did just feel alone a lot, you know, cause it's a lonely sport, right? The score is just you out there. And, and in actuality, just like your example in childhood coming along with Chris and Miller, it, it should have been more like our Chris and Blake should have been more like that in a way that we were having the shared, uh, experience. Yeah. I think that's very pointed. We didn't share with each other how we were feeling on the golf course beyond the anger that we had because of the current situation and our games not being where they need to be. I'll never forget that round. What it was in St. Croix, what we got to play together for whatever reason. I forget why we got paired together. Pro for an probably because we were round. dead last. I think is why we got <laughs> yeah, paired we together. Two guys, when two guys on the same team are playing together, that usually indicates that <laughs> the, the the scores aren't going well. There's something about DFL and that. Yeah, maybe that's why we teed off on a whole 18 or whatever. We who knows where they put us. Uh, but yeah, and I think like that round is one of my most memorable rounds because I think that speaks to like we had each other to talk through throughout an entire round uh, yeah. where lonely definitely how I felt during every tournament round right like oh completely isolated alone there's a couple guys throughout our conference you know some of the OU guys that knew because we were able to talk but if you didn't get paired with some guys like that I mean you just felt 
completely isolated during those 18 or uh, God forbid those 36 whole days. Yeah. For, for people that hit their own slumps, you know, I think one thing I, I, I tell them, you know, when you're like playing and you're not playing well and you get to this 15th, 16th hole and you just kind of, you don't give up, but you don't care where the ball goes anymore. You're so frustrated with your game that day. And, and then all of a sudden what happens? Like, boom. Oh my God. I just made the best swing of the day. Why? Yep. Because you weren't thinking about it because you weren't so obsessed with, with the result and, and in your head. And I, I think about that in long periods of time as well. Like, I, I think that round uh, was a perfect example. We kind of just didn't give a shit, and we went out there, and we played great, and we enjoyed the company of our playing, the two other guys we were playing with. And I, and I think people need to take that perspective maybe more broadly a lot of times. So if you yeah. hit, like, a, a rocky month of, of your golf, you know, just, just kind of take a higher-level approach to it and just say, hey, I, let's just take a step back and, and just make some free <laughs> – free swings or, or I step up on the first tee and say, it ain't about score today. Like, let's just make a good swing and see what happens. Um, I saw that happen with us at that time. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things reflecting back on that, and this is something I, with any player I work with uh, and teach, one of the big things I stress is no round is important. No single round, no tournament is important. If you think about the grand, the grand scheme of things, how long your career is, and that, none of that is important. So just treat everything as a learning experience. Just treat every round, every shot as something to learn about yourself, where you're at, you know, where you're at in your progress, because it ultimately doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you shoot 82 or 72 in a single round. Uh, just at the end of the day, it doesn't. USAM qualifier, I shot, I think, I don't know, 82 my last round or whatever. Turn around the mid-am qualifier, shoot 66, right? Like, that no single shot really matters. So just always just be asking yourself, what did I learn today? What did I learn today from my round? Whether it be mental, physical, technique, execution, whatever it is, you can just learn from it and just move forward. Like there's no reason to dwell on it or, or get down about it. And I know that's easier said than done. We all you know definitely be mad when you shoot 82 or whatever your bad benchmark is, be mad. Uh, but use it, right? Use it to get better, to think about yourself and think about the grand, the whole progress of who you are as a golfer. That's really good advice. And we're we're going to get into, you know, what you're doing with Squares and Circles and the players that you're working with, because I know a lot of our members have uh, hit you directly with questions about what you do there and how you help golfers. Uh, so we'll we'll get to it. Um, but moving on from from college to uh, you know, you, you kind of sounded like it was a blessing to you looking back. Would you agree? Just kind of, it wasn't, it was a rocky period for your golf. It was a rocky period for your life, but, um, is it a curse or a blessing? I mean, yeah, it's, I try to, there's very few things I regret in life. And, and I think for that reason, as I look at from that, like this situation is a perfect example. It's a blessing because of the relationships I've developed, the mindset I've developed, where it's led me. I mean, I'm here at the University of Georgia now in a wonderful college with a wonderful job that I work with wonderful people, a great fiance, you know, have I have this relationship with new club now. Would that be there if I didn't go through that experience, right? All these things that are here now that, yeah, it was a blessing that's framed my entire worldview, especially around the game of golf. Uh, yeah. So yeah, wouldn't there, take any of it back. There's a, uh, something I consider to be a massive blessing and where my golf life has taken me, where my life is today. And that was a trip that we shared together in 2005 uh, I was going to study abroad in Ireland. I didn't want to bring my clubs because I was so burnt out. Um, but prior to that that summer, I said, "Well, let's let's go play some golf." And, and we had the opportunity to join some uh, some Akron boosters on a trip uh, to to Northern Ireland. And uh, I'm I'm curious to hear uh, you and I've talked in, in little segments about this experience over the years. But I, I'd love you to try to sum it up. Like what what did that trip? mean to you and, and your relationship to golf yeah so that's when i was falling out of love with golf right during that time period i mean, honestly i'd already fallen out of love with it in a lot of ways and and something you know i certainly wasn't able to put my finger on it at the time and i don't even know if i could explain it in full now like when we were over there all of a sudden i was in love with golf again like that entire trip right that we just had a blast i mean we were running on maybe because we were running on no sleep i don't know but we were you know just it was the Guinness. It was, it was just fair. It was the Guinness. It was yeah, the Guinness. It was the, definitely the Guinness, which I still slug to this day because of that trip. Um, but yeah, like there was something about those courses, those experiences, the people we were with, just the the compellingness of 
the golf courses, the people of those golf courses, the towns that just really struck a chord uh, at that time, right? We had a wonderful blast. And all of a sudden, got back to the States, and I was back to being empty again on golf, right? Just gone. And that's where I quit, you know, for essentially 10 years where I picked up clubs when you guys came and visited me in Phoenix. I'd pick up the clubs, dust them off. I'd go lose 12 balls in desert golf, get mad after five days with you all shooting. I don't know. I'd probably even break 90 some of those rounds. Uh, and so that went on for 10 years. And then for several reasons, picked up the game again. But looking back, like that experience, I think, helped open my eyes without me knowing it of what golf like is about right what is what is this thing that we call golf and really what are the key components of it uh and that trip to ireland i think planted that first seed that i'd never experienced before in my life yeah there's i don't want to be too redundant to what you shared there i, I want to get more of your take on it. if anyone wants you know my take they can read the blog and and how kind of new club got its its start but i do think back to it from your perspective of you know, sometimes people ask, like, what what is Kevin, you know, he's the chief ambassador, obviously. He's very passionate about New Club, yet he doesn't live in our local market of Chicago. He's, you know, growing people all around the country. And I and I think back to it and I'm like, I think Kevin is so passionate. And tell me if I'm I'm right or wrong here. Um, because he was able to see this firsthand and experience exactly, you know, what we did to to launch New Club Golf Society, which was, you know, Scotland and Ireland, how the whole approach towards golf is different than what we were living with and it has the ability to really transform people and lives and and um i mean is it does it stem for you your your passion for doing all the work you do for new club and and the, the ambassador program does it stem from that trip you think or is there is there other domestic reasons that that kind of contribute to your passion for this I mean, I think, yeah, if I had to point to a few, definitely that trip is the major seed, right? That's the catalyst. That's the genesis that planted an experience in me that I can always go back to about, okay, what was different about that? Because I think, so one of the cool things, again, like why I don't regret quitting golf for 10 years, when I came back, it, I came back almost a blank slate, right? It's not true in the in the purest sense, but in some there's some truth to that. I came back as a blank slate where if I'd been continuing to play competitively that entire time, even just on the amateur circuit, I'd still be influenced by that. But I, I mean, I quit, literally I quit competitive golf. I didn't play a single competitive tournament for, it might've been 11 years, uh, maybe even more than that. Uh, if I went back and actually traced through. So that came me, when I came back, you know, I had that fresh slate where I didn't have the competitive mindset anymore. That wasn't what I was, I was looking for that still, but it wasn't the only thing I was geared towards. My whole year wasn't built around a competitive schedule. It was, no, I just want to play golf again too. And I want to compete, but I want to just play golf and connect over that. So I think the the game in that sort of, or the experience in Ireland set me, it gave me an experience to hold on to that I could think about how to like replicate that, right? How to embrace some of that experience that made me love golf for just that 10 days we were there that made me love golf again. Like what was it about that experience that did that? And I've been able to use that, you know, in a lot of uh, work and obviously new club embodies a lot of that experience that we had there, uh, which is just awesome. The other influences, I mean, obviously our relationship, uh, including New Club, has just been huge in terms of my growth over the last three or four years. I'll never forget when you called, I don't know if you remember, I was on a tarmac um, on a delayed flight, like we were just sitting there waiting to get out when you first called about the idea of New Club. Like I'll always remember that conversation because I typically wouldn't pick up in the situation, but it was one of those like, well, I'm just sitting here for an hour. I might as well pick it up. And oh, obviously, thanks, you're thanks. real, real friendship shines <laughs> through. You're not going to typically pick up that call. Come on, bro. Not, not because of you, but because of the person beside me that I didn't want to annoy with a long conversation. But, right. um, I, you, I would just block anyway. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so you know, like, and obviously, New Club at that initial stage was a little bit different than its current inception, but that you know, that relationship helped me blossom in terms of who I am as a golfer now. And then I got to think too, like, this architecture bug as well and like that sort of undercurrent and i really trace you know andy the relationship i've developed with him in a lot of ways have influenced me jason way is another guy that's influenced me in some significant ways and then i have to certainly shout out about the sweetness crew you know sweetness cove rob like rob like i i'm in severe or significantly indebted to him like sort of taking me under i don't know if i want to say under his arm or whatever the first time i showed up there having a long conversation with me and then bringing me into that community along with the guys like Trey Moon, Jim Hartzell, and that bringing me into their community and being part of that has been another major influencer there 
And, and then lastly, I'd have to say my, uh, obviously my parents, which throughout my entire life, but I got to give Claire, my fiance, a shout out to like, we're golf degenerates, you know, you and me. And that, that comes with it. The idea of a golf widow or whatever you want to call it. And she's been so supportive of like, yeah, this is a passion of yours. Like this makes you a more whole person. So, you know, she's been very supportive of when I say, Hey, I'm going to fly to Boston to play in the USAM qualifier. And she's like, go do it. Yeah. She, she is awesome. (laughs) And, uh, I, I was going to ask, you know, just about your guys' relationship because I, I think it's admirable, right? You get to play a lot of golf. You you keep golf a part of your your life and and the consulting work you do, and you know that there is sacrifice to be made there. And uh, I think she understands you're crazy, you know. I think she does. I think she understands and accepts that. <laughs> yeah, sometimes and, tells me that. That's for sure. And for you know the members that are listening that are coming to Scotland, we we get to be around you leading up to your your wedding which is in saint andrews which is as your friend it's unbelievably special and for the two of you just everyone's so excited so you know thanks for letting us be a a part of of what that's going to be coming up yeah we can't we're so looking forward to that trip and just having the special people in our life there to share that with us is just going to be incredible the uh so I'm, we're, I, you kind of touched on the Kevin Moore that the Kevin Seymour that uh, most people know, right? Are, are are starting to know via through you know whether it's the the blog post that you write for for us and many others, or your activity on Twitter. Which honestly, I think you're one of the best Twitter followers in golf. Like, and I'm not. I know I'm biased there, but I've had other people tell me that, and because you're you're just so thoughtful. Um, but it's this kind of hybrid. You you you. I think you uh, just illustrated what what that 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 crossroads is right where you are so passionate about places like sweetens and you know municipal golf efforts and community golf efforts um you're you're so heavily into to architecture and the art of architecture but then you have this very scientific background you know being a professor at the university of georgia in mathematics and even as i'm looking at you now there's a bunch of shit on your uh chalkboard behind you that i have no idea what language that is written in. I'm just seeing bell curves and uh, equations that. I mean, are... if, you had, if you had gone to class more often, you might have. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you didn't hear me for a time. Uh, yeah, that that stuff gives me anxiety. But but that that is a skill set that you obviously not a skill set. It's a a craft that you've perfected over over years. So how how does that all blend together? Do you think? Um, I think it's what makes you such a unique perspective uh, that you're able to balance kind of the um, the romanticism with the rationalism, with the pragmatism, with the uh, the dreamer elements of golf. You know what, what? What? Where do you find it all meshing? Like, what? What's the the meeting point for you? I mean, sometimes better places than others uh, because there are yeah there are inherent contradictions to it. In terms of like, if you want to do romanticism versus rationalism or whatever dichotomy you want to break things into, that there can be conflict to that and tensions that have to be addressed, which certainly comes up in my work, right? If I, it's the reason people ask me, like, why do you, have you done a course guide for Sweetens Cove? And I'm like, no, I will never do a course guide for Sweetens Cove because that is one of my, my play, like, call it my religious temple that I'm just not going to put that paintbrush over top of. I just don't want to do that. Um, so there are some tensions, but ultimately for me, and I think this maybe stems from just my, definitely my place of scientific inquiry and research background. I love breaking things down in the, the parts that constitute it, right? Like really thinking about, I'll frame it directly in terms of golf, like what makes golf special? What makes it unique? You know, what, what are the things that contribute to the experience of golf and really thinking in detail about all of those? Not everything can be quick, quant- uh, quantified. That's just impossible. We can't do right that we have personal experiences that we've all gone through that shape everything we see so i I really and maybe this also comes back from my cognitive background in terms of some of the research i do that i love thinking about just that like what goes into everybody's personal experience including my own and trying to really tease those apart and think about that Uh, because ultimately i do and i think this is you know part of new clubs influence on me too is like we have to be advocates for the game and really if we just flow with the evolutions of the game as just pure participants which some people will do that and that's great like just be a pure participant but then you're at the whims of whoever has control of the game whether it's oems the usga 
this premier golf league, whatever it is, right. That's influencing the way you see it. I think one of the most powerful things we have as humans is to be critical and self-reflective. And we should do that to try to identify, okay, what are the things that really contribute to the golf experience? And what are those that we really want to value, hold on to and maintain? And that's obviously there's some architecture speaking through that, that the grounds of golf to me are definitely something I'm biased to. And, you know, I look at that as being without the grounds of golf, what do we have? And again, I don't mean that in terms of like, uh, what I want to say, like just valuing the Pinehurst and the Seminoles and the National Golf Links of the world. I'm, when I say grounds of golf, I mean our local municipal golf course that gives access to people to play golf. Like what can we do to help preserve that and what can we do to make those as compelling as possible? So thinking about those things is just something I love to do, uh, which plays with those tensions ends of, you know, the scientific thought versus just the emotional sort of spiritual buddhist then all of those things that go into my thinking as well yeah I, I i can't i think it's mckenzie or somebody who has the quote you know all discussion is for the betterment of the game or it's probably butchered but it's along those lines and i i think that's what most people respect a lot of the way that you engage with others around the game that you're you're very accepting of all viewpoints although you have strong stances on certain things um you are you're almost like you thrive on the discussion. You really like to go up to understand others. And not enough of us do that, right? We want to be comfortable. And, and I think your influence on me uh, personally has been um, to say, like, oh, that's okay. Like, get, get their perspective. Like, understand it. Try to, try to understand it a little bit. It'll, if anything, it'll give you a greater appreciation for the way that you like to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or, the, or maybe not. Or maybe you're going to find out that you actually enjoy whatever it is that they're, you know, trying to promote. Um, and it's really good for the game. I mean, I, I just think it's, it's crucial for the game. Yeah, I mean, understanding others' viewpoints, right? That's something we all preach, but it's very, very hard to do. Uh, yeah. So the more we can do that, and like the distance debate's one of the big ones that's up now. That's where, like, I have my convictions. But at the same time, if ultimately for the good of the golf and we'd have to define what we mean by good of golf but it would go different or there's stuff that says oh we should go a different direction then that is what it is like that's what we should consider does it does it where does your data always come in and at what point right like do you do you start with data or do you end with it or do does it is it always in the back of your mind what what's where does it start where does it end yeah i mean data is always on my mind, right? In terms of trying to think about things we can quantify versus those that we can't, right? And data. So I have one fortunate, in in terms of my overall academic journey, I've been very lucky that I've done the just purely mathematical quantitative engineering style research, right? At University of Akron, I worked with a, you know, one of the top polymer research groups in the nation, right? The government polymer research was done at Akron. And as part of my applied math degree, we worked on a lot of just physical modeling of how things grow and whatever, which was all strictly mathematical quantitative modeling that, right? And so we did that research there. And then I moved into more educational research in terms of my, you know, latest work, which is highly qualitative, right? So I think of data, both quantitative and qualitative, right? That we have to consider those things. And often you know where it's like triangulate data, those sorts of things. So you're trying to you're trying to gather as much data points as you can and think about how they operate together. Uh, so that's what I'm always thinking about, right? So anytime I'm thinking about data, which is every single experience I go through, the question is always, okay, what explains this? And what are alternative explanations for this? And then through that, you generate the need for more data, right? That helps clarify, okay, what direction do I want to go? For example, I'll just use one thing. Like if I look at, say, one of my players' data, and I'll do it in terms of hard qualitative data, I might see some sort of trend. Okay, that's great, but that doesn't explain anything. The question is, what are the explanations for this data? Like why might this data be here? Like what might I be seeing here? And that could be, there could be quantitative reasons before, there could be qualitative reasons for it. Guy broke up with his girlfriend. Like... There might be nothing wrong with that person's golf game other than that happens. So their golf game is slipping. So you see certain trends and there's no, without understanding that possible explanation, there's no reason to react to those trends until you explain, until you understand that more. 
in terms of the cliche distance debate right now, right? That we can always provide a data point that indicates something, but always the question has to become, what might explain this data? Why might this data be the, be showing what it is? And can I generate 10 competing explanations and pursue more data off of that? Right, that is always what's playing in my mind. Right, nothing is ever conclusive because we're completely subjective. All data, all data that we collect is biased through the techniques we're doing, the sampling we're doing, the way we see the data. Like what we infer from the data is completely biased. Uh, so it's always about asking further questions and building up evidence that's around a whole lot of different areas. So I guess that would be the way I summarize of how I operate, which is why I give the typical academic response to most things of like. I don't know, or I don't have a conclusive claim here. Like, let's go after the data and see. I certainly have convictions and bias and opinions, but I'll be very clear when those are the case. Yeah, I, th- I think it's cool to see you go to work and triangulate, I guess. I, th- I think I know what that word means, Kevin. Thanks for, for using, <laughs> uh, you know, above my uh, my vocabulary. Um, but I've, I've seen you do it is actually pretty interesting to where, you know, you, um, Gosh, I you, you, I want to use the distance debate. We're not going to get into it because if we were going to get into it, we would have Mark hosting this since you and Mark seem to sit on very uh, opposing sides of the, the distance debate, which would be a fascinating conversation. We should which, actually see that which out. Which is funny, too, because we're like opposing and maybe just, I don't know if it's opinion or whatever, but like we're very like-minded in terms of the approach to the approach. Yeah, the and problem, that's, right? And like, that's, yeah, and that's what I was going to use as, as the example, right? Like approaching that problem and seeing a gain of distance, well, you're going to whittle down into that, that stat and try to figure out, well, what are the other factors also pushing on that stat at the same time? And that, that's complicated. That takes a lot of time. So although we're all looking for, you know, whatever it is, 42 characters to explain shit, I, I do think, you know, that, that approach, if, if someone gave you, (laughs) I wish someone would give you just a world of time to, to dive into all those facets of it. Um, because I think you would eventually get to some conclusions, right? Or is that, is that the approach? Yeah, that's the approach. I mean, research is hard. Like it's, it's both, you want to do it both in a way that's authentic to the situation, right? So using available data, that's, if we're doing in the world of golf, whatever we're researching, you want a data that's in the context of competitions themselves, of people playing golf, right? You want that data. You also want data that's more strategically designed so you avoid some of the methodological flaws in using data that's not well designed right because not well designed data in terms of its collection and what you get is entirely flawed in terms of drawing any sort of inferences from you can draw inferences from i'm not saying you can't draw inferences but it's flawed in the inferences that you draw and the strength of those inferences so you look for other ways to also supplement that data to think like okay i have these explanations i've had these hypotheses let's pursue them and then you can also even add in, like, and this is why research takes time, you can de- you try to develop predictive models. So if this is my explanation for what's going on. This is what I predict would unfold in real time of actually what's going on. And then you see if that holds or not. If it doesn't hold, okay, well, I have to revisit what my hypothesis is here. I have to revisit my explanations and think about what's, what's going on. So through that process, you get to something at the end. This is really like, the un- this is really the undercurrent of physics that you say, good enough this is explanatory and predictive right it's not necessarily tells you what it is or how it like this isn't a perfect mirror for how it is in real life but this is good enough gravity is a perfect example from physics it's good enough you get on the microscopic level gravity does not hold the the gravity models that we that we use right they're not perfect but they're good enough for most of the stuff that we explain it's why track man works so well right like Therefore, the projectile physics that we have isn't perfect, but it's good enough to do what it needs to do. Well, I'm, I'm having flashbacks because with the whiteboard behind you and and uh, you just going on your you know your mathematical visions, <laughs> I, I'm having flashbacks to college with you know your hair was a lot crazier and and bigger, and you'd be drinking a you know Mountain Dew just working on your thesis. I, I that was like like an artiste. It was like watching. <laughs> Watching you go to work, but uh, our professors know, or our members know you as the professor. Uh, sometimes I think you're the mad professor. Um, <laughs> Often. <laughs> let's go to some some quicker answer questions. So uh, back to golf. Your favorite golf game to play with friends? Oh, I gotta go with just favorite golf game to play with friends. Just I gotta go straight four ball. I mean, I'm just 
in foursomes too, four ball or foursomes. Those are just, I don't know, just what the, I don't want to say the game was built around it because I don't have, I'm not that well studied on the history of different games that were played, but I just feel like it's just such a pure form of golf, this four ball and foursomes or any variant too, right? You can play two left versus two right, so each hole the teams change. I just think there's something pure about the team aspect to four ball and foursomes and the playing hole by hole match play. It's just, yeah. I, it's just good. Yeah, do you do you prefer, you know, the stand that standard to the, the points games and you know, you can get a scotch game, you can get uh if you want to go crazy, do Wolfhammer and such. Do you do you prefer kind of the simplicity of match play over that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean Which is interesting. For I, a math guy, I felt like you would just dive at the opportunity to do, you know, more calculations. Yeah, and yes, I'm gonna say this and I'm gonna sound like a maybe I don't want to sound like a jerk saying this because like again People, I know they love that, and it's great for them, and like their experience is wonderful doing that. For me, like my version of golf is golf. Like it's the course, it's the grounds, it's the people I'm playing with, and anything that gets outside of that, like that pulls away from that focus of attention, like distracts me. Where it's like if I'm playing golf, like keep it simple, four ball match play or foursomes match play. Like everything's contained to the grounds we're playing on with the people we're playing on. You don't have to worry about pulling up points and all that. It just keeps it simple so I can focus on what I want to focus on. Love that. Uh, your local, what, what's your favorite way to experience golf in Athens? You know, you're down in UGA. Uh, how do you like to play? Oof. Two ways. So I'm, I'm fortunate to be a member at Athens Country Club. It's a 1926 Ross. Uh, it's just, really really cool golf course like i can go up there you know there's something refreshing i can go up there 3 30 any afternoon and basically just walk to the first tee and go even just by myself or claire will walk along sometimes too and i really just enjoy that sort of alone time like after a day of work to just be up there get out for it's got all sorts of all sorts of three hole loops six hole loops five hole loops you could do basically whatever you want on the golf course and that is an absolute blast just the decompress, get it lost in the game of golf. That's the one place I can go and work isn't on my mind. Um, so I really, I really enjoyed that. Uh, on the flip side, though, I've been fortunate enough to work with the UGA team a little bit, and it's fun to go out there and just practice at their facility a little bit. Like it's a good, it's a really good facility. To just get lost and getting better with yourself, and you know, I can learn from them watching what they do to get better. I mean, they're some of the best players in the world. Uh, a couple of them are thinking in top fifty right now. So I can watch them, what they do, the practice, and how they they work at it, they get better. And so I can go out there for two hours and just practice my own game, sort of watching them and mimicking some of the things they do to get better. And that's uh, that's another nice way to cut out work early and, uh, and go learn from them a little bit. If you had seven days of golf, you know, someone cleared your calendar, you had seven days ahead, um, how many days are you playing versus how many days are you practicing? Because you like to practice, I, I I think that's and, and and I can only do one on a day. Like I you only can do one. Day. Yeah, yeah, one or the other. And I and I won't give the cheating answer of you know finding the the creative ways I practice on the course. So we'll treat playing <laughs> as like I have to score. I have to score my ball or whatever. Okay, yeah. so we'll do that. Oh. Can I ask a clarifying question? How compelling is the golf course? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get my academic. I'm gonna get my academic mode. We're gonna we're gonna no, get I, on this one. I know this is why a parameter? podcast with you is never gonna fit in 40 minutes because of the layers. Let's uh, say that's local, so you live in an Athens, so you can either drive to Athens, you can maybe go to Sweetens one of those days, you can play the places that you play the UGA course. Well, we gotta take Sweetens off the table because that's seven days playing golf. Okay, and that's, that's that. we're taking we're taking Sweetens off the table because that's. Okay, Athens Country Club with my practice. If I'm in Athens based and it's Athens Country Club or like Athens facilities slash UGA facilities, I'm probably playing. You know what? I'm going to play five days and I'm going to practice two. Okay. So I still think playing is definitely my privilege, but I can certainly, I mean, I, if you said you have to practice seven days in a row, I. I'm very keen to doing that too. I can find creative ways to keep practice very interesting and dive in if you made me do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that kind of gets to what we'll wrap up with, with just kind of what you're doing with squares and circles and the, the whole player plan. I'm, I'm just fascinated in, in the, the way to practice, but, um, what, uh, 
let's talk a little architecture. Okay, you got only one hole to play for the rest of your life. Which one is it? <clears throat> one right. hole, not round, one hole. Yeah, I'm going to take Sweetens off the table again because that's like, what's your favorite son, right? Like, <laughs> so, okay, if I'm including Sweetens, I think I always, I always go to number two, I think is the best hole at Sweetens Cove. But I'm gonna I'm gonna move away from Sweden's but one hole the rest of my life. Tupac's so good, by the way. That thing has my number. I actually don't think I've parred. I don't even think I. I think I'm like 97 over on two, which tells you a yeah. lot about my strategic abilities on the golf course. Hit right in that bunker every time. Oh, every time, man. Just I. Oh. I haven't laid back yet, though. Maybe that's the next approach. Tell me yours while I think of mine. What's that? Oh, tell uh, you yours. Tell oh, me. mine. Uh, yeah, why? Why I think of mine, <sighs> buddy. Wow, this is this is really good. Actually, I, I I'm loving this just this thought process as it's running through me. Oh, I, I I have I have mine, and it's a it's it's a spiritual maybe architecture answer, but it's it's 13 at uh, La Hinch. I knew you were going La Hinch. And 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 I'm telling you why because that. One, the overall round kind of crescendos, as people know, in the heart of the course. It's like boom, boom. It's just, you know, uh, large in scale and scale and the dunes right on the coastline. But you come back on uh, on 12, the par 5, the dog legs left, and that's an awesome hole. But then, like, you're back in the dunes. You don't see the, the ocean anymore, yet you have this short – it's a short drivable par 4, and – and I, I did make ego when I played it, but that's not, that's not, or at least most recently, that's not, I promise you, it's not, but it's, it's, um, oh man, it's just the way that the land moves off the, off the, the, the whole, the whole, I mean, you got so much, uh, variety of, of both ways to play it. You know, a lot would probably argue that it's better hole if you lay back and hit a nice wedge into most pin placements, and then you can kind of go for the green and get into a really tricky spot, or you can hit the hero shot. And I think if I played it over and over and over again, there's just enough land movement, there's enough contours, there's enough uh, beauty to it, but but a subtle beauty. You know, it's not in your face, uh, like bonkers good it's just it's solid and and i love where it falls in the round but if i had to play it over and over again you know maybe it doesn't stay in my top spot but mm-hmm. i i love that hole i really do yeah i'm trying to like i don't think this would be my favorite hole but one of my most memorable holes is royal county down number three mm. that right? was up there for so, me like that just whole just, you know, one was what it was, but I was still jet-lagged. Two, you got that little blind tee shot, and then kind of the green sits up, and it was like, okay, this is, other than the fact with the blind tee shot with the, the dunes and the hills, you know, it was kind of a typical golf hole. But then three, just like, I just remembered that moment, you know, you got the, the sign post behind the green to see with the background, you got the wind coming off the, the water, and you're just moving out away from the clubhouse. And, like, I remember hitting this piercing three wood that then just got on the ground and just ran forever. And then, like, 2.30 in or something like that. And I remember hitting a four iron that just landed, like, 30 yards short and ran all the way up on the green to, like, 15 feet. And then I remember the next day, it wasn't as windy, and I hit again a good three wood and then had, like, 2.10 in, and this time I flew it into the green, right? Flew into the middle of the green again to 15 feet. I don't think I made either, either putt, but... Uh, like that hole has always stuck with me in terms of playing entirely different on two days, one of which like ground game completely in play. And I used the ground like it was the only way I could make it work. Right? I couldn't hit a 230 shot up into the wind. It wouldn't have got there, uh, wouldn't have rolled, like would have been as susceptible to the wind. And then the second day with the wind down, I was able to play it completely differently. Right, To play that hole entirely, to see an entire different hole. And that's always stuck with me. Like this play a whole back to back and have it play fundamentally different in almost every aspect has just stuck with me forever. So it's just one of those. That's why it's hanging up on my office wall right now. That I, whole. Um, <laughs> like it's literally, I had to answer up there in front of me this whole time. And, it's on that I would, and I'm not making this up. I'm looking at the same hole in my office and I don't, I don't know if you copied me or I copied you, but obviously it had, uh, a, a spiritual impact on both of us and it looking at the hole now it is a kick-ass golf hole yeah. you know what else was a kick-ass this is something kevin will never forgive me for this and i think i should share it with the audience um uh-huh. 
But, you know, Kevin really liked this sweater that was hanging in the, uh, was that the Royal County Down Pro Shop? I don't, uh, no, it was, uh, I think it was Port Rush. It was Port Rush. Yeah, we, we got done at a foggy day at Port Rush, and he just was eyeing the sweater. But he's like, ah, I don't know. I wanted sweater. that sweater so much. And I, and I think I even told him, I was like, ah, oh, you, don't, you don't need another sweater. Think of how many sweaters we got. And <laughs> we get done with the round, and, and, you know, I'm walking through the pro shop, and I'm like, damn, that is a nice sweater. So I buy that sweater, and I show up to the next, the next round just wearing the, the next sweater. next day. The next day on the first day. You, I don't think you've forgiven me. I have not forgiven you. I can't believe you went and bought that sweater and wore it the next day. Just unreal. So it was a good looking sweater, though. I will I give you to, that. I talked him out of the sweater and then I went with the sweater. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. what Argyle, like a baby blue. Oh, just, it's, yeah. RIP. That, that, that sweater is somewhere in a, in a, uh, a pub somewhere in, in Cork, Ireland, I believe. I lost it, but, uh, I'll tell you what, when we're in Scotland in May, um, I will not be tipping off any of my wardrobe choices as I'm shopping through the golf shops. <laughs> Keep it close to the chest. Keep it close to the vest. That's right. Uh, all right, last really kind of quicker answer question. Do you step to the first tee, um, competition or not, what's going through your head? I tell you what, I get jitters. I get first tee jitters. I really, really do. Um, so there's definitely a sense of, anxious nervousness like the body getting ready to perform and execute so i do always have to like handle those in some way if it's you know getting into a quick meditative state or whatever like that's always there but then especially as soon as that first ball away is away it's like today is going to be fun like i can't wait to if it's by myself or with you know if it's by myself i just can't wait to walk these grounds and just flow with the round and you know especially by myself i spent a lot of time just looking at the golf course, looking at the contours, looking left and right, um, see as much as possible. But then if I'm with people, like just really looking forward to sharing, sharing the day, whatever course we're on. Uh, there's something about connecting with people over, over the game of golf. That's, it's always fun no matter what. Cause I think the ramble a little bit, like what I love about it is how much you find out about someone on the golf course. I mean, you learn so much about who they are, the way they see life, the way they approach other people. If you just spend three and a half to five hours with them on a golf course. Uh, and that's just fascinating how the game does that more so than, than I suspect any other sport. I don't play every other sport, so I'm not going to say more than any other sport. But I think really it, it gives you an opportunity, maybe more so than any other sport out there, just because of the nature of the game, the breaks between shots the holding up your end of the bargain of playing to the rules and playing the game for what it's meant to be. You, um, you obviously have a lot on your plate with all these different projects, uh, some related to golf, some not. Um, but what, what do you got coming up next? What are you working on that, uh, that's coming down the pipe? I mean, obviously new club and we're doing that, but we can, we can talk about new club all day. Uh, so definitely squares of circles. You know, I launched that last year. Um, and I've kept that real low key, just, not really trying to grow it so much, just work with, you know, very specific players, a couple teams that I really want to work with and give them some time. Um, so still keeping that going. But then one of the one of my early clients, awesome dude, Nico Daris, uh, new club ambassador, shout out to him. Uh, he's out in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm going to see him or Scottsdale in uh, a couple weeks. So he was one of my initial clients and we got into, he really took some of the stuff I was doing and formalized it for his own game. And through that conversation, we're like, man, there's there's something here. So we've created something called Golf Blueprint that we've been working on that we're just really, really designing out practice plans for people um, to target and get better, to really think about what are you going to do when you're going to the golf course to play or practice? You know, what's what should you be doing? Uh, and so we're just really targeting that together and doing some really cool creative stuff there. So looking forward to, you know, collaborating, you know, our collaboration, our co-working together. He's a really cool dude um, and seeing where that goes. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you, your current uh, Rolodex, you're working with college teams, you're working with pro players, are you working with you know, the average Joe, the, the 15 handicappers as well? Yeah, I got a little bit of everyone. You name a handicap, I probably, I'm probably talking to someone that's in that range somewhere. Because uh, everybody's trying to get better, right? Or I don't know, better is always a weird word to use too in golf, right? Because it's really just everybody's trying to have a, everybody's trying to attack the game in a certain way. So helping them do whatever, you know, I, however to help them improve that that's what i'm looking to do what are the aspects of this and, and working with people that you've enjoyed the most 
I think getting to learn different people's per- perspectives on golf is always a blast. Like I just love seeing the way different people think about the game, approach the game. But really, relatedly, just everyone's personal journey and getting to see that, you know, whatever they're working on, whatever they struggle with, whether whether it's confidence, execution, or just something strictly as, hey, my putting stinks, I need to get better and really targeting a specific, specific facet of the game. Uh, it's just such a blast to see to see everybody's story and get to work with people and craft shape their story and help them do that. Uh, I don't know, with, it's very fulfilling. With the uh, and we've seen some pretty cool results from some of your players, and and I think um, you know that's where you know you could, you could put together any plan, but really it's going to come down to to the results for something like this, right? And and how your players are performing. So you've had high level collegiate, amateur, professional, you know, winners. Um, what what give us an example of like maybe something that was surprising that turned around somebody's game or not turned around but just got them that next that next gear going into an event or whatever is there is there something that kind of comes to mind that you're like oh wow this was um, very impactful for this particular person yeah it's hard because surprising is always hard because in retrospect you typically say oh that was obvious how did I not think about that beforehand right um. I'll tell you what, there's one specific example. I leave all my players and teams nameless. Uh, I like to keep a, a low key on that. So I won't name the specific person. Mm-hmm. But honestly, we, we flipped the script one time. Just really what we were working on based on the data was what should have been working on, but was just making, just didn't see tangible progress and that, that's that's okay like a lot of times you don't see tangible product progress and it just happens to work out right like it's hard to see progress incrementally sometimes it just clicks but what was we rolled the dice going into a tournament and what was being worked on we did something exactly opposite in terms of the areas of the game they were focusing on and it was one of those like okay use this tournament as a just building block and let's see what happens and the person went out and won that tournament so just completely surprising that you know we're treating it as a building block and just testing out something and it and it just worked. It's a complete surprise. But I think really looking back at the retrospective thing is like, well, duh, like it just completely freed up the player, right? To say, okay, what we've been working on, let's stop doing that and just free up now and do something different, and it just changed their mental state a little bit uh, to where like it changed their expectations relative to what they were working on and focus them somewhere else. So that whole week, they were sort of in this trying to figure out something new mindset, and it sort of just fell into the wind. Uh, That's so that cool. was kind of cool. Yeah, because yeah, it's free, just not something you, Yeah, not something you typically see in that way, where like everything felt lost in a way, but then all of a sudden it, it clicks and pans out. But that's sort of the game. It's just weird in that way. So for those that are are members of uh, New Club, they know where to find you. Obviously on on Slack channels and. Uh, for those that aren't members of Nuka, where can they uh, where can they check you out? So, Twitter. If you want to go there for the Twitter noise and banter and whatever's flying around there, that's Kev Seymour. So K E V C M O O R E. Also have a Squares and Circles account there. I haven't been doing too much with that. Just been more on the personal account um, there. Uh, Instagram. Haven't been playing with that too much. Kev Seymour though is Instagram as well. Um, that's just I do a couple stories, but that's about it there. Uh, and then. Uh, email so kevin at newclub.golf if you ever want to get through in touch with me on email that's where the that's where they hit me up right on and as we're uh we're looking forward what, what's what are you looking forward to you know when we got a big year for new club a lot of events on the calendar uh, i know you're going to be trying to get to to many Wh- which ones are you uh are you circling what stuff are you looking forward to people teased me a little bit last year but i'll do it again too i, wanna, I gotta get up for canal shores meetup and that's heck yeah you know, people are like, wait, you flew up to Chicago to play Canal Shores? It's like, why? yeah, what, where else would you want to play when you come to Chicago, right? Like, that's the good to go there and the, the efforts that are being done at that golf course in terms of that community and have it be a central focal point of the community and ex- give accessible golf to the, the area. I mean, that's just such a great, such a great thing. So hopefully I'll get up there this summer and, you know, maybe if we'll do some digging too, if that's going on, that would be a, a fun part to... Uh, to take part in oh yeah well new 
the the society has collectively adopted number fourteen. So you know, we'll we'll do some bunker edging. We're gonna we're talking about some native grass areas. You know, to to feed in a little bit. Um, so we'll need the, the all hands on deck. And you're right. It's you know places like that. It's funny. It's like, of course, we're looking for the most compelling golf courses, and a lot of them will be your more exclusive type experiences, right? And and they're they're incredible. But you know, the real rarity in golf. <laughs> Are the places like Sweetens? Are the places like Canal Shores? Are the ones that, um, you know, I, I guess it goes back to your trip to Northern Ireland and and our trip there in 2005, right? We we've been trying to recreate that ever since, and uh, and we do it in little ways, but we're, we're always you know on the the lookout for for those places. And frankly, those are them. You know, those are them. Yeah, it needs a compelling, uh, great golf course, but there's so many other elements, uh, mostly that have to do with the people. Um, the community around it, the, the, the spirit of it. And yeah, we'll keep, we'll keep hunting, man. We'll keep finding them. Well, and that's, you know, when we think about, there's a lot of conversation, what's, you know, what's best for golf and what, what will make golf thrive and be, be something that's sustainable and grow, whatever you want to say, right. About golf in terms of sustainability and keeping it around and keep it. And to me, it always comes down to having compelling golf stores golf experiences be affordable and accessible right like that ultimately is what the litmus test is when we think about what's most important to the game right so that's what satisfies that and i go back to there it's always about the people and it's always about the grounds of the game like those are the two biggest contributors to that Uh, and i think we need to never lose sight of that we need to keep that persistently on our mind for those those people that want the game to you know, thrive. That's the two biggest contributing factors to it. Well, you're a, you're the a great ambassador for us, the chief ambassador for new club, but uh, you're an exceptional ambassador for the game of golf. So thanks for uh, coming on, Kev. This was fun. Yeah. Awesome. Always, always fun talking with you, man. Mm-hmm.